look at the remarkable shift in public discourse around climate change and the urgency of addressing it and the power of the voice of youth, simply by the act of a young girl, Greta Thunberg, choosing to sit alone in protest outside the halls of Swedish parliament. From this, a movement has been born that has energized youth and changed the conversation in unimaginable ways. There's no way when Greta sat down on that stoop, she could have known the outcome. There was no way when my father asked teachers to set a day aside to teach on the environment that he could have known the outcome. This brings me hope, the sort of unimaginable goodness that can come from acting from a place of our values, taking individual action, and knowing that while it may seem small, there's great power in it, often in unimaginable ways. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Tia and I covered a lot of topics, including the Sony Walkman, planned obsolescence, politics, carbon taxes, and accounting. Those sound like maybe not so exciting topics, but I think they were interesting the way we talked about it. Also, Vince Lombardi, individual action. I can't wrap it all up into one summary, except to say that she's been at this for a long time, working with government, nonprofits, as an individual, and basically since birth, since she was deeply connected with federal and state government at all levels. And of course, Earth Day from the start. And besides Vince Lombardi, some other big names were Brent Suter from Major League Baseball, Oprah Winfrey. Anyway, I can't wrap it all up, but it's a very interesting conversation. And of course, there's her challenge, which I think will be relevant to many of eating less beef and how it went, and did she enjoy it? Did she not enjoy it? How did it work with other people? Let's listen to Tia Nelson. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Tia Nelson. Tia, how are you? Good morning. Nice to see you again. Same here. And I want to hear about the eating meat and the eating habits and things like that. And also how last time I spoke to you, it was just after you had come back from that conference and you were really excited and I'm curious how that's gone. But just before hitting record, I mentioned that it's the 40th anniversary of, oh, we're talking about music and headphones and uh, and sound. And and I mentioned it's the 40th anniversary, I think today of the Walkman. And at the time it was like the pinnacle of sound. You could have sound anywhere you wanted. No one could ever do that. No one ever did that before. And it was private. You could just, just you. And today, if someone said, here's a brick, here's something the size of a brick, you get 10 songs And the battery will last about an hour. People think it was horrible. And my takeaway is that happiness doesn't depend on these external things so much. Materially speaking, you know, people wait in line for an iPhone. When they know a year later, they can't get rid of it fast enough. And then you were commenting, then you mentioned something about taking, can you say what you said? Sure. And and I think it, it connects nicely with this broader exploration and journey that you're on to look at how individuals have an impact on the environment 
uh, both positive and negative. I've wanted, and I haven't done the research, but I've, uh, I give a fair number of uh, public talks and I talk a lot about the power of individual action and uh, unexpected outcomes that can come, arise from uh, simple ideas, like my father's idea around an environmental day to teach about the, uh, a day to teach about the environment. But think of, you know, the the act of buying a, a new iPhone and, and then try to think about what the impact that that simple consumer choice that has. And I thought, gosh, could I, you know, do the research to do a talk that looks at all the components and all the resources that go into making that new iPhone. It includes trace minerals mined uh, often under terrible uh, labor practices in developing countries, often by children, and extraction and use of all, all kinds of resources and, and pollution arises from it, of course, in any type of consumptive and manufacturing behavior like that. And if we could really pull apart all the pieces of an iPhone and just, you know, demonstrate what that impact is, maybe we wouldn't uh, rush so fast to to get the newest uh, one. I've bought just one iPhone in my life. I was issued one by the state, but I never really learned how to use it because I could only use it for state business. And I was very prudent about just using it to make phone calls and check emails and look at my calendar when I was traveling for the state of Wisconsin at the Public Lands Commission. And But after I left that job, I, I got my own phone and I'm having issues with it, storage issues with it now. And, you know, lots of people say to me, I would just get a new iPhone. And I'm like, I, I don't want to get a new iPhone. I just, this phone already does many more things than I actually need. It's important, uh, Joshua, I say this a lot to my friends. It doesn't really make me the most popular person at the party. There's a lot of legitimate criticism of industry, especially the fossil fuel industry. But let's not forget that capitalism is is a complicated uh, economic system with, with many flaws. But here's one thing we know. Companies don't stay in business making things that we don't buy. So the role of the consumer and consumption of things is, is a significant part of the uh, climate change challenge. And that's why the work you do in helping individuals see uh, the impact of individual action and how we conduct our personal lives really does matter because our buying cars and buying phones and buying computers and being um, happy spending consumers. Um, this is a significant part of the problem and, and individual action can be a significant part of the solution. And the phone would just be one example of that, you know? I'm glad you said that. You know, when you're talking about the phone, there's a few things I want to comment on. One was, you know, when you talk about the phone and the parts in the phone and what the impact was of those things, it makes me think of, we have ingredients lists on food when we buy packaged food. And I feel like if we didn't have them, it would be tough today to pass a law to force companies to put the ingredient list on, even though it seems obvious. It's another thing like libraries, public libraries. I feel like if they didn't exist, it would be really hard to get them to happen today just because the public, I mean, like privacy, not privacy, uh, copyright protections have yeah. grown so much. Yeah. And it does seem like something that makes a lot of sense. We wouldn't have to have had it before when things were not made out of, when things are made out of wood and metal and not plastic and, you know, yeah. who knows what else. And now it seems like an, it seems to me, 
an obvious thing that we should know to make an informed choice about how we're affecting others. What you say makes a lot of sense. And for you to have to do all the research, it, I mean, it seems like the company should, it seems to me if there were a law that said the companies have to report the sourcing of all these things, that would seem to be a law that would be fundamental to capitalism. It's not yeah, like... It's, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it, gosh, you know, the idea of an ingredients list for your iPhone would be, would be amazing. Just like now you can look at a cookie package and see whether it has palm oil in it or not, which is a significant issue for deforestation. You know, if it, would people be so swift to buy the latest iPhone if they knew that there was the lithium was uh, mined using child labor in another country or that degradation of soils or waters occurred um, in the extraction of these uh, trace minerals or the manufacturing of these uh, plastics. I think that's really a fascinating idea because, you know, you can't make informed decisions without good information, right? Exactly. Um, so I, I have it in the back of my head. One of these days, I'm going to write a speech. What's in your iPhone? And just the question is, will anybody invite me to come give this? <laughs> yeah. Did you ever read the essay, I Pencil? No. Ah, it's, it's a really interesting read. It's short, maybe a thousand words or 2,000 words, I think. And someone wrote an essay on, it's like from the point of view of a pencil, that no one, no one individual could make a pencil. The wood, the, all the carbon, the, the eraser, they, call, they all come from different places and no one could actually make one from scratch. I mean, I guess someone could, but that's not how pencils are made. It's a system that works. And I wanted to write something, I plastic bag. So I pencil says where all the stuff comes from. I want to write something of where everything goes to. Yeah. Because in today's age, that's more interesting. And what you're talking about is maybe an, also an update of, uh, just to make it common knowledge, I think capitalism rests on people being able to make informed choices. And if they're not informed, then, I mean, I could see someone saying that the, it's not the role of the government to do that. And maybe there should be private corporations to do that. And I could see disagreement on that. But to make that information available, I think, to me, makes a lot of sense. It's, it's, it feels almost deceptive. And, and if, I don't know if you've seen the documentary, The True Cost, about clothing. No, I haven't. And, I'd be interested in it, though. I, I've only recently become aware of... of uh, the cost of fast fashion, and it, it's quite significant. I, I found out about it, you know, looking at microplastics, and it turns out lots of those uh, small plastic particles are actually from synthetic fabric. Tell me the name of the movie again. I'll look it up. The True Cost. I think it was free on, online. And I mean, people have seen movies about this, about meat and about lots of other things. And this one happens to be on fa mostly fast fashion. And I didn't know the scale of it or the problems involved with it. And once you see it, you really want to know the stuff more. Yeah. Well, there's a woman in Madison um, who I'm a great admirer of, Nikki Anderson, who came into thinking of the fashion industry uh, from a concern about the exploitation of women and children in the manufacturing of, of a substantial percentage of the clothing we buy in America, the low wages, the poor working conditions. And she opened a clothing shop called Change on... Um, we call it Willie Street on the east side of uh, Madison. It's uh, actually Williamson Street. And uh, there she is uh, sourcing uh, organic fabrics and verifying fair wages are paid to the largely women who are manufacturing. 
uh, sewing these uh, clothing products. It's a lovely uh, store. And her dedication to verifying environmental and uh, good environmental practices and fair labor practices for all products that she sells in her store, and, and she's a clothing store. You know, when I first heard about it, it, I wondered whether it was possible to be successful, but she's doing very well and has done some wonderful, you know, things for charity as well, uh, including um, supporting young women in the fashion industry and, and raising some money for uh, sewing machines to go to women's clothing co-ops in, in uh various countries in Africa to uh, support some clothing co-ops and empowerment of women. And I just had no idea, how, you know, the, the environmental impact of the so-called fast fashion until fairly recently, which, tell, which tells you we could wait. There's something new to learn every day, you know? Yeah, it feels to me the future and way past due. I, I just don't want to be responsible for like if I'm paying for something, I believe that I take responsibility for what made that thing happen, and I want to know what I'm taking responsibility for. I mean, that's why I'm not flying, and why I like getting stuff from farms nearby. It, people view it as like, like what you said when when you react when you said that something with your iPhone is broken. They're like, oh, just get a new one. And it's like the cavalierness of that. Yeah. Age. If I like a hundred years ago, if I was walking through the forest and I found an apple tree. And I bit into an apple and it was rotten. And someone said, oh, just get a different apple. Sure. There's lots of apples around. It's, I, I just throw the one on the ground. It's going to rot or maybe even sprout into a new tree. But getting new stuff... Actually, I just saw... I met a woman who... She does something like what you're talking about. Well, something different. But she started repair stores in New York. Like repair stores are gone because nothing's reparable anymore. And yeah. it, like iPhones leading the charge of like disposable and planned obsolescence. And who knows what's in it. Who knows what went into making it? And people are like, well, just get a new one. Um, at what point, like how many headlines do you have to read before you say, I can't simply ignore, I have to take into account, I have to take responsibility. I think any parent, I'm not a parent. And so I don't know what it's like to be a parent. But I would think that that, that feeling of responsibility that comes at the expense, yes, you can't party like you used to. You can't just arbitrarily choose to do what you want, not caring about others. I would think that as a parent that I've never met, a, I know that there are people out there who regret having children, but I, I, I bet they're a really small number because I've never met someone like that. Everyone I've met, when they're a parent, they're like, they, they love their child more than anything else. And that responsibility is, improves your life. This feeling of like, well, just get a new one. Doesn't the, the superficiality that it seems to me required to keep that view and to live that way in given the front page headlines that we see, maybe not daily yet, it just seems untenable. Yeah, I you know the alternative of that, and I I I, uh, I have to uh, really work at uh, being patient and compassionate and trying to check my frustration. Sometimes the alternative for me, and something that's a really quick way to tick me off, uh, which I realize is not a particularly emotionally healthy response. <laughs> I'm I'm working on it. Right, the Tai Chi is helping me, but is uh, just throw it away. And I'm like, well, where's a way? Yeah. Have you thought about when you say just throw it away? There is no away, right? Everything it came from this earth and shall return to this earth. And the funny thing, my mother, my mother is, you know, some of this was was uh, imbued in me at a very early age. My mother caught me trying to throw away a very inexpensive 
a broken three-legged stool that had been in the garage for years. And it uh, splintered, the, one of the legs splintered in a way that would be difficult to repair. Uh, and I'm not a handy person. My mother's not a handy person. And it was this cheap thing. And I, I try not to throw anything away, but good Lord, my mother grew up, was born in Appalachia and grew up during the Depression. You know, when we had Christmas at our house, uh, we had to use a, a pocket knife to open the pack, you know, the wrapping paper on the presents um, and save it so it could be reused. But my mother wouldn't let me throw away the stool. And I, so I snuck it out into the trash. It, there really was no way to repair it. Believe me, if there was, well, I suppose there was, and it would have cost, <laughs> cost a lot more than the, the stool itself. And uh, this cheap splintered pine that, that just didn't, anyway, I, I snuck it out in the trash and my mom went out and found it and dug it out of the trash and put it back in the garage. So she said, somebody can use this. Someone's <laughs> like, well, mom, I can't fix it. You can't fix it. It's been sitting here for 20 years. Can I please throw it away? And she's like, no, no, I'll, I'll figure it out. Just leave it right there. Of course, but yeah, eventually we, uh, I, I managed to sneak it out of the house. But, uh, you know, I recently redid my floors. Uh, my stepfather did the work and he's very handy. And I asked him, I took pictures of all the, there's a, a fair amount of waste that came out of it. I asked him to save everything he could and to reduce as much as he could. And so he saved all the old floor and he was ready to throw it away because why not? And so I put it up on Craigslist, free floor, and someone came by. And not only did someone come by to pick it up, but the person who picked it up, picked it up on a bicycle and she had to make it several trips with it. She had a cart on the back of it. And Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, people originally, a couple of people before her said, like, I, I just respond, I got a lot of responses. And so I wrote back to people saying, all right, if you can come pick it up, here's where I'm going to be home and pick it up. And so two people with vans said, all right, I'll be there. And then one, it was raining and that was like too much for him. And then someone else, there was traffic and that was too much for him. And then this woman on the bike, like the one with the bike should be like, that's the, you know, it's under her own power and so forth. And she was the one who made it. I was like, there you go. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's, that's cool. That's cool. And I want to ask you, so with the stool thing, or they're not throwing stuff away now, it sounds like you've, you've now you have adopted, correct me if I'm wrong, you've adopted some of what your mom does, or maybe more than the average person that maybe you'd still throw away a stool, like when it's completely, when it's as irreparable as that one was, but you probably save things more or maybe buy stuff more that isn't going to break so much. Do I read that right? I really uh, try not to throw things away. The other thing that's helpful, and I, you know, I understand that I'm to some degree privileged in this regard. I, I'm much more conscientious about ensuring that I buy something that's quality and durable, that isn't designed, you know, for planned uh, obsolescence. Uh, buy less of it, throw almost nothing away. It does get a little cluttered sometimes in my garage as I try to figure out how to make some good use of it. But I, I can't remember the stats from your uh, web page, but I know that that measuring your how much household trash you generate is one of your metrics, which I think is great. I don't measure it quite as carefully as you do, but. Gosh, I probably generate one bag of uh, refuse, meaning garbage in the garbage can, you know, typically probably one a month. Sometimes if there's something like uh, uh, chicken bones that I didn't uh, compost into my yard because, you know, this spring I had a raccoon. If there's something stinky, I might 
actually throw a, a bag away before the month is up, uh, but, but it's still just about a bag of refuge because I am extremely diligent about recycling and reusing. And of course, the most important uh, is, is the first R, reduce, you know? Yeah. Part of the reason I asked is that a lot of people before, if they don't live that way, from the outside, they say, you know, the people who say, I'll just throw it away or just get a new one. I think from their perspective, they anticipate that that must be an ascetic life or a life of like painful details that don't really matter. And I'd have to think back if I felt that way myself before. But now that I keep track of all these things, I don't feel that way. And I'm curious, how does it feel to you? How has it affected your career? Has it held you back? Is this a problem? Or is there something people are missing? Oh, I don't know. That's a great question. I don't think I have a very insightful answer. It hasn't held me back. I've gotten a few eye rolls for my, you know, I've, I, uh, even at my own office, I've recently dug out a, had one of the more creative uh, interns um, who has some graphic arts background uh, create a, a pretty little infographic to go above the trash and recycling bin to help people understand what's recycling. And much of it is obvious, but some of it is not. So she created a, and she made it into a picture. And 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 yet still I go to recycle the newspaper or throw away some legitimate trash. And there is this um, plastic food container from the grocery store next door uh, in the trash, not the recycling. And, uh, you know, I held it up and I said, yo, people, this is recycling. And the person who had put it there said, you know, well, but it has food in it. They had just eaten lunch. And I was like, okay, watch this. And I kind of, <laughs> honest. and I just, you know, got the sprayer from the sink and squirted it like once and the food debris went away. It is important that we not contaminate the waste, the recycling waste stream, right? It'd be better. It's better to put it in the trash than to contaminate the waste stream. Uh, but really it's much better to just not contaminate the waste stream by spending a minute getting the rules of the road straight, you know? It's not that hard for me. It's it's second nature. And I don't, I felt kind of bad because I, I, my intention wasn't to make somebody feel bad, but I was like scratching my head. I was like, well, yeah, you don't want food in it, but it's not that hard to get the food out. And, it, you know, these plastic containers, I mean, we just can't, uh, it's interesting. Now, you probably saw it today, New York City, or within the last few days, New York City has uh, begun to implement the uh, styrofoam uh, food container ban. And there's a fairly hefty fine. Uh, there's a six-month phase-in of it, uh, and the fine is to the retail seller. And uh, it'll be interesting to see you know, how it works and how, how people react. But we've come to um, see this as some type of convenient quality of life issue when in reality it's creating enormous inconvenience uh, and uh, greatly diminished quality of life. It's just that with this concept of away, throwing away, that that we don't often see it immediately, you know? Yeah, I've come to view carbon taxes, taxes on extraction and pollution. Also, I view as essential to capitalism that if if you make something and I pay for the cleanup, but you get all the profit, that's just poor accounting. I mean, if someone has to clean it up or someone has to suffer pollution as a result of it, then you don't, you're not accounting for the costs. And 
no economic system can survive without proper accounting. It's not a matter of, I don't see it as a matter of regulation any more than keeping accounting. I mean, you would never allow a company to lie about its finances yeah. to the stock market. It, so that, you know, this question, you know, Josh, I, I had a, I got a degree, barely, I might add, in wildlife ecology, a Bachelor of Science in Wildlife Ecology, graduated from the University of Wisconsin. And somewhere, you know, maybe even a freshman or sophomore class, uh, there was a discussion of externalities. And that concept was very new to me at the time. And But it really struck me, this very question that you're illuminating now, and I had this uh, debate with a family member who likes to... Uh, likes their styrofoam, I'll just leave it at that, and said, well, this product costs less and took less energy to produce. And I said, but it it never goes away and it's not recyclable. And there are these other costs and society is paying them. And they looked at me and were like, well, what are they? And I said, well, the air pollution, water pollution. So yes, it may have cost slightly less to manufacture that than a biodegradable product. For one thing, we know, like from looking at renewable prices, that as you scale up the these the production of these products, the cost per unit comes down. So you can anticipate that happening here as with so much else. But regardless, uh, the, the true costs of this product include the costs of cleaning up this pollution, and I'm paying for that while the company is profiting from the purchase of their product and not not paying for those so-called externalities. So I I wonder, I I guess I wanted to ask you a question, you know, how do you think we get at that um, in a more effective way at this question of uh, externalities, the environmental impacts of these things that, that are not reflected in the price of the thing we buy? Obviously, a carbon tax, that's why we, I mean, we can't address the climate. We need a lot more than putting a price on carbon, but we need that um, because otherwise, uh, in essence, it's a bunch of free riders for the fossil fuel companies in which they don't have to pay the true cost of their product. Yeah. Well, first, I want to, the, the person who brought the, who had the plastic packaging that you sprayed the food off of and moved from the trash into the recycling, I would have brought a container with me. And I mean, I, I generally have, I always have a fork in my bag and I often, if I know I'm going somewhere where there's going to be food, I'm going to bring, it's actually just a Tupperware lid. It's plastic, but I've had it. I don't get rid of things that I have. I'm going to use it until it breaks before getting a new one. So I'm not going to get something new just if I have something existing. So I'm going to use it until it's gone. So I just carry on this lid and that's my little plate when I'm at like a wine and cheese thing. And then there's nothing to throw away. Or I mean, eventually it'll break and it'll, I'll throw it away and that'll probably be 10 years from now. I don't know. Uh, and I guess at that time, I'll have to replace it with something metal or something like that, but I'll figure that out at the time. So there's a lot of, I, I don't know all the answers. I mean, I know that there's a lot of things that people are doing and I'm a big fan of, of certainly learning more information, getting more science, uh, figuring out what things are made of and, and getting that information out so people can make informed choices. I believe that Play, a level playing field means their rules and that means regulations. And so I think that, and I believe that they should, I'm only a fan of regulations, legislation that is enacted through popular support through a, a democratic process that people believe is fair. I don't like the idea of trying to go around that process, no matter how right someone thinks they are, uh, which I like when I, I remember speaking at a scientific thing and they were just like, look, we know what's going on here. We got to get this law passed and we're going to do it. We're, like they're, 
they were trying to go direct to the senator and, and I understand where they're coming from, but what I think is missing and what I'm working on is to help lead people to where they want to do these things, not just in principle, but in their gut. They feel like this is meaningful and purposeful and I will do it. And so I don't see a lot of people working in that area. So I don't know if it's all the answer and I don't want to suggest what I'm doing is exclusive of everything else. I want to augment everything else because I want the votes to come. I want the votes to pass easily, the, the legislation to pass easily because no one's, I mean, I'd love to see warehouses full. As long as people are making something packaged that doesn't need to be packaged, I'd love to see warehouses full of the stuff unbought because people just aren't buying it. And then they say, all right, we're not going to get this stuff anymore. We're not going to produce this anymore. I mean, I don't know all the answers, but. Well, I, yeah, I, I, you know, I presume that you've seen how Catherine Hayhoe, the climate scientist, an evangelical Christian talks about why reducing one's environmental impact generally and greenhouse gas uh, footprint uh, particularly is important, uh, even recognizing that it's a small impact on the part of the individual. And, and she does this much more eloquently than I, but I use quite persuasively for me that and, and you're speaking to this point now, by establishing this behavior as a cultural norm, the only way to do that is through how we conduct our own lives. Well, um, you know, my strategy here is, I, on the podcast, it's one-on-one with an individual. I hope that lots of people listen to it and that that influences them. But there's another big piece of my strategy with the podcast, which is to get increasingly influential people and... One of my goals is, like, I, I usually use Oprah Winfrey as an example, that based on a past podcast host, uh, guest pointed out that the number one predictor of someone installing solar on their home was not how much money they'd have or how much money they'd save or what the energy cost would be or anything. It was how many people in the zip code already have already yep. installed solar in their homes. And right. there are many takeaways from that. The, my takeaway was that community influences people a lot on these social and cultural things. And I thought, who's in many people's communities. So Oprah is like, I always talk about like the first name people because, you know, when I say LeBron, you know who I'm talking about or Elon or Serena or Madonna. But people of, I think right now people, they're trying to make Google carbon neutral in some ways. But there's also this headline that I came across a while ago that said, the top three executives at Google have eight airplanes between them. And I think that a lot of people take away, well, it's nice to make this company carbon neutral, but really success means getting several airplanes. and as long as the people who are, you know, I'm not a leverage point of a system, but some people are. They are cultural, they set cultural norms. And the big top people at Silicon Valley, the people who win sports, you know, MVP awards and people who win Oscars and, you know, these people are setting cultural norms. And I'm not aware of any of them that are actually living the values that we believe we need to, in order to keep the earth sustaining life and human society at, at numbers that are around where we are. You know, you know who comes pretty close. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, but you know who I, I, I think this would uh, benefit some further exploration. But my understanding is that Leo DiCaprio works pretty hard at that. He's probably is flying and when he travels uh, by a pl- private aircraft, but. He's been studying um, uh, carbon farming and his latest movie, Fire and Ice, comes out and and is looking at 
a variety of climate solutions. He's been, he bought one of the first Priuses and I believe that he's a vegetarian, but, you know, think of, I mean, Oprah's show did so much to promote uh, the healthy practice of mindfulness, for example, and, and uh, so think of what the impact would would be if if she were a leader and demonstrating through her life and lifestyle uh, these values. It's challenging because we've come to equate uh, wealth uh, with the accumulation of things, objects, and privilege and luxury that's uh, so often associated with a with a large environmental footprint yeah and i believe that the benefits to her and any guest are you know i'm not asking people to do what i tell them to do i ask them to think of something that you know to share a value of theirs and then to act on that value and you know almost everyone when i ask you know is there something you can come up with to act on that value they almost always think well it has to be really big or it has to be something near too but you know that's not what i'm asking it's just to act on something, your value, which is, it means that it's something that the person likes. And I think that if Oprah's on this show or I'm on her show or we do some special together and she, you know, she shares very openly. And if she were to share a value of hers, environmental, and then to act on it and then come back the second time to share what, what that experience was like. And we would make it clear to the audience, don't copy her just because she's Oprah and don't just do what she does in terms of like what, project she takes on or challenge she takes on, but think inside to yourself, like what, what's a value of yours and what's something you could do to act on your thing. So it's for you. I mean, some people copy her just because she's a celebrity. I'll take that, but that's not my goal. And I think that if we do that episode together, I think that because of her stature, she would influence more people maybe the next day to act on their environmental values than I think all the scientists, educators, legislators, and journalists up until that point. And all all she has to do is enjoy yourself. You know, well, we'll hear how your experience was with, with decreasing the amount of meat that you had. And I don't want to lead the witness or anything here, but I suspect if you like many of my past guests, that the experience was a rewarding one for you. We'll hear in a second. But yeah. for her, to, all she has to do is, you know, enjoy something, share something, share what she cares about, act on it. Now that will make her a bit vulnerable because some people might say, oh, well, that's not really, I don't know. Some people, people can judge you. But I think she's, a, she's learned to handle that. But she will enable others to openly share what matters to them, even if it's not what Greenpeace says it should be. But I think also they get to those other bigger things after they do these little things and they realize how much we share in common about wanting clean air, clean land, clean water. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So now I'm, there's all these open threads that I want to go back to, but I, I also I want to go to your experience. But I also can't help but comment that... Throughout all of what we're talking about, it seems that you really love Wisconsin. I know this is a change of topic, but it seems like a, a, you sound like you love where you live incredibly. Do I read you right? Oh, I oh, very much so. I do, you know, for a thousand reasons. And I, you know, I, I've been, I grew up in the East Coast and I like Washington, D.C., the city that I came into adulthood in, in many ways. But I love Madison. It is very much home. For a number of reasons, uh, we have a lot of we have a lot of water in Wisconsin, and I'm very attracted to that. My favorite place I've traveled all over the world, and my favorite place remains the Apostle Islands, um, which is the largest freshwater archipelago in the world. Uh, it's in Lake Superior, 22 islands, uh, 19 of which are, are 
now named the Gaylord, uh, were created as the, by George Bush uh, as the Gaylord Nelson Wilderness Area, so named after my father for his efforts to protect that unique uh, resource. I love the fact that I can, we've got the most uh, robust farm to table and farmer's market. My uh, food from uh, local farmers who are uh, humanely raising their animals and and organically raising their vegetables and it's just about the right size for me. It's a university town, so there's enough culture and music to, uh, to be interesting, but it's small enough to feel like a town in certain ways. And I've built a great community and uh, of friends. Um, and we have a long history of uh, uh, progressive politics. Uh, and, of course, we have a long history of um, great environmental leaders, uh, John Muir, Aldo Leopold, and, and uh, of course, uh, my bias, uh, my father, uh, Gaylord, the founder of Earth Day and the author of author and champion of uh, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Wilderness Act, uh, and so many other laws to protect our rights uh, to breathe clean air and drink clean water. So we have long environmental traditions and and my father's a beloved uh, figure, so I, I'm a lucky child in that regard. I'm a beneficiary of some extra love from his great legacy and kindness. Uh, and um, uh, it's just the right size. And I, I just love, uh, I love the culture of the Midwest. It's very refreshing to hear. And it reminds me that, uh, well, it reminds me, I think I mentioned last time that my father on a sabbatical year taught at Wisconsin-Madison. And... I've had very little animal products of any sort and I've, I haven't completely cut out dairy, but very little, but Babcock Hall and the ice cream and the yogurt there, I remember just, exactly. it was like low fat yogurt that tasted like heavy cream. Yeah. The Babcock Hall ice cream is, is absolutely the best ice cream you can buy anywhere, even at an Italian gelato shop. It's just amazing. And it, you know, I, I love it here. Glad to hear. It. Yeah. And it also... I haven't learned how to change my language yet. When I talk about not flying, it sounds like a negative, and it is a negative, not flying. But the flip side of it is what it has become for me in my heart, which is pride of place, joy of your neighborhood, of your local where you live. Yeah. And I've been increasing my, how much I love here and appreciating. So hearing you love your here, it's more, it's more meaningful to me now. Yeah, yeah. That's nice. Thank you. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So let's talk about your challenge. You, when last we spoke, if I remember right, maybe you could clarify, you, you were going to eat less meat? No, what I said was no beef uh, for a month. And that, that was the primary thing. When we talked, I had already for some years been in a place where all the animal protein that I brought into my house not, uh, was locally raised by a farmer in Dane County. I buy it at the farmer's market or we have this fabulous place called the Underground Butcher near my house where they get a half of local grass-fed 
cow each Monday, and uh, they do a lot to promote the use of all of the animals' body parts and help you understand how to do that. And I love that. And it's you know it's a throwback to the past in terms of a butcher shop in many ways. But I was already sourcing all of my pork, chicken, well, most of my chicken, all of my pork, all of my beef that came into my house, all of my turkey that came into my house was locally sourced. And I will continue that. What I did was give up beef for 30 days. And with a little less uh, structure, I did sort of think more consciously about how much animal protein I needed to make a meal um, be what I wanted it to be. So it was, you know, the, uh, I didn't think much, I mean, I, I thought about it with regularity, but it was really not much of a lift. There was one time I'd been going back and forth to DC. My 96 year old mom is sort of going through a, a new phase of decline and I want to be around her more. And so I've been scuttling back and forth. And the night before I did my last trip there, I didn't have food in the house because I was I'm being much more conscious about food food waste. I love food and I tend to, and I love to cook and and have dinner parties and and sharing food with others, um, especially well prepared and sustainably sourced, is a, something that brings me joy. But I had no food in the house because I was trying to be so careful to not have food spoil in the week I was going to be gone at my mom's. And there's a great uh, joint near here that gets beef from a, a different butcher that's ground daily, and they're really good burgers. And I didn't have time to cook. I didn't have food in my refrigerator. And I was like, damn, I really want to, really want that burger. From the, it's called the Bear and the Bottle, which is a, you know, which is funny to a Wisconsinite. We we've got our black bear lovers. Anyway, the the bear in the bottle uh, makes this great burger and that would have been convenient and tasty. And that's what I wanted. So I had this one and I was like, nope, no beef. This So there was one moment when I, you know, uh, wanted a good old fashioned burger, uh, but it passed and I didn't uh, eat any beef and it was really nothing. I uh, ate a few ounces of pork or a few ounces of chicken or a few ounces of turkey when I included a protein in my meals, I think I mentioned to you that that Brent Suter, the pitcher for the Milwaukee Brewers, has become uh, Outriders Sports Ambassador. Brent eats just a plant-based diet uh, two meals a day and has a small amount of animal protein. He's in um, a healing process from a sur- injury and surgery. And his trainers told him that he needs some of the amino acids from animal protein. He's, he didn't want, you know, he's looking forward to becoming a vegetarian, but right now consuming very small amounts and uh, just talking to him and, you know, he's a young growing guy and a sports figure who hangs out with a bunch of macho meat eating guys. And uh, he's very focused on that impact and he's had an influence on me just our conversations, you know? So what meat I did eat was locally sourced. It was not beef. I was eating about, I found that three ounces was, was more than enough and uh, that I didn't miss the beef. Uh, the only beef I did have when I went to my mom's one night, she, I was trying, she's getting kind of fussy and, 
I asked her what she wanted for dinner and she said she wanted meatloaf and I didn't have time to make it. If I had time, I can make a fabulous meatloaf out of ground turkey, way, way better than a beef-based uh, meatloaf. But I was going to the grocery store in Safeway. That's our grocery store in uh, Maryland has prepared meatloaf. So I bought it because I wanted to give my mom what she wanted and I didn't have time to make it. And, uh, brought it home and was about to serve it to her. It looked really good. And uh, before I could remember my pledge to you, I had a bite of the meatloaf. And I was like, damn, I just broke the, I just broke the pledge. But uh, other than that bite of my mom's meatloaf, I did not eat meat. And I certainly I did not eat beef. And I did not, honestly, I didn't miss it. Uh, I only wanted it that one night because I had, you know, equated the convenience with the local joint and, you know, the particular situation of that moment. So, uh, you know, I had that, that moment when I wanted that burger, but it passed. So that's the, what you described as a play-by-play. And it sounded to me like the, if I could, the top level thing that I heard was that it wasn't that big of a deal. Oh, not at all. Not at all. And so how about the emotional side of it? I, I think I can read it from your tone of voice, but what was it? Was it, was it fun, challenging, rewarding, annoying, or... How would you describe the emotional experience? Uh, It was, how would I say it? Really not particularly noteworthy or interesting. It it was so, so much and nothing. And I, you know, uh, I mentioned Brent. I didn't tell that that part of the story very well. Uh, Brent will not eat beef. And as I've learned more, for instance, you know, 600 gallons of water for one burger, you know, so much for short showers under that scenario. I just thought, you know, I do like a good steak, but I've gotten so that I, that I don't even like the flavor of commercial grain, uh, grain fed beef. So I'd always already getting pretty selective about it, but I like an occasional steak or an occasional burger, but I did not miss it. And uh, really am inclined to think that uh, the next step for me should be to either completely eliminate beef or uh, just say no beef. But if, if I'm at, if I'm, you know, a guest in someone's home or some occasion, meaning a couple times a year, it's a part of what's going on uh, or, or something I want to not be too rigid about it. But the more I've learned, the more I've on the journey towards really getting to an almost all plant-based diet for the uh, health of our natural resource base and, and for my own health. I'm I'm getting older, and uh, for the first time in my life, my blood pressure is occasionally up a little bit. Uh, red meat and high blood pressure are directly related, and I can take care of myself and the planet by eliminating that beef and reducing my meat consumption. And so that's just something that I decided is um, easy to do and important to do and has really the great side bet of making me a physically healthier person. You anticipated my next question, and maybe you just answered it, but I'll ask it anyway. Is it, is it something you intend to keep up? And what's, is it leading to other things, whether food-related or not? And you've already, I mean, this is already on a baseline of a lot of things already. Yeah, I think, you know, diet is a really, really impactful place where individuals can make a difference. And... You know, I've uh, been in a couple of uh, vigorous discussions and debates with uh, folks, uh, a few folks who 
think that uh, you know we need to talk about population growth more as the true driver behind uh, climate change. And I, as a Westerner who lives a very affluent lifestyle by any measure, though I, I you know, I out of fixed income and. I recognize that for many people, I'm a well-off person and I feel well-off. I have everything I need in terms of material goods, but really it's consumption. And I, the person who struck me the most, he'd be a great uh, interview candidate for you if you haven't uh, uh, talked to him or thought of him already, was uh, Andy Refkin, um, former Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Andy, my, my, uh, I'll leave out the names of a couple of people to, to protect the not innocent, but, um, you know, someone was saying, we need to talk about population more. I was facilitating a, a, a private lunch and had asked, uh, Andy who has been following the population issue for a long time. And he said, look, the world can support 7.6 vegans. It cannot support 7.6 people with a diet like most Westerners. So, you know, another friend of mine said, you can translate almost anything into an equation, and I, I uh, mathematical equation, and I thought they, they had to be wrong, and I'm dyslexic, so I hate math. But they said, you know, what is impact on, uh, you know, the impact on our environment? It's not just how many people we have, it's how much we consume. And as a wealthy Westerner, relatively speaking, I think it's important for me to focus on the consumption side because that's where I'm having the biggest impact on other people's life. And the number of people matters, but what we consume and how we consume it, especially for those of us who are affluent, matters the most. And diet is one of the most impactful ways that we can make um, a difference. You know, the electricity sector generates 25% of uh, global greenhouse gas emissions today. Uh, ag and uh, food production is 24%. So, you know, effectively the same. And that's a place where we can make a difference as a consumer and uh, through our policies, incentives to farmers to engage in more sustainable practices. Um, think of how much the farm bill spends subsidizing uh, practices that aren't good for the environment. Uh, there's, uh, but it, happening at all levels from individual dietary choices to broader consumer habits to public policy, uh, food has a really big impact on addressing this challenge. And so for me, as someone who's passionate about food, loves to eat and cook, um, this is an obvious area to Focus. So I've I've started my one of my associate uh, at the office, Parwat Regmi, uh, who's uh, immigrated from Nepal with his family. His mother's a fabulous cook, and I love that type of uh, cooking. And it is very legume based, and they do such fabulous things with the cooking techniques and flavors. And you know, I just don't meet, miss meat at all when I'm eating uh, Parwat's mother's cooking lots of uh, lentils and potatoes and vegetables. They use lots of green herbs. In a little while, I'll go to the office. I have uh, uh, my dill went crazy this year. I threw some flowers that had gone to seed last year on the ground. And I, I gosh, I literally have a bushel of dill that I didn't plant. And um, I'm taking it in along with some other um, herbs that I'm growing, Tulsi, which is holy basil, and a, a whole bunch of varieties of mint. 
and lemon verbena, and I need to keep harvesting it to have it uh, keep coming through the season. And I'm taking it all into Parwat, uh, to Parwat to take to his mother. And uh, in exchange for her teaching me some of her secrets to creating such delicious lentil and vegetable dishes so I can, uh, you know, increase my, my repertoire. You shared something toward the end there that I think is missing from most people's message on the environment. You started by talking about what a lot of people say is the impact that is that meat or not meat has, that one individual can make a difference, the impact on the environment. And then you got onto what I think is also critically important, but missing is it's joyful. It's like, yes, it may be if you feel like, oh, I really want that burger, then there'll be times when you feel like you miss it. But that passes just like any craving. And if the alternative to how people ate, say the standard American diet was like in the movie, The Matrix, when they had that, uh, that gruel that didn't taste very good, but it had yes, all the I remember. <laughs> yeah. If yeah. that was the alternative, I, I don't know if I would support that. I mean, if that's all that was available, I guess it's better than dying, but that's not the alternative. The alternative is you talk about scattering the seeds in your, in your garden and reaping what you sowed and sharing that with others. And what you talked about with your mom, you could have made the turkey one. Okay, some things are easier because the systems that we're in right now are that way. But those systems will change and they'll change faster the more that we do this. But most of all, correct me if I'm wrong, I'll speak for myself and you tell me if it matches with you, is it's joy. It's like, it's great to, there's not only am I missing anything, my diet is more delicious than ever. Yeah, yes, it, absolutely. And it helped, you know, it's interesting. Parwat has a curiosity uh, and an interest in food that I think part of which is cultural. I offer herbs to some of my friends who were raised on sort of meat and potatoes and the broccoli that you'd push to the side, which has been bred to taste like nothing, but travel well, you know. I offer them herbs sometimes and they're like, well, what would I do with it? And um, if they're really curious and open, then, uh, you know, I'll give them, tell them to chop it up or dry it or to throw it in with their stew or, you know, give them a cooking tip, right? But Parwat's curiosity and he wants to taste uh, uh, everything and, and, um, And his culture uses tons and tons of herbs. Herbs isn't something you sprinkle on the top of the dish. You incorporate it in a really thoughtful way. And it is reflected then in in the food that his mother is making. I mean, it's so remarkably flavorful. And so it's so joyful for me, the idea that I'm going to go harvest some of my herbs that are so abundant, I don't know what to, they're beyond my knowledge capacity to do something with other than to dry them and share them with Parwat's mother. And then in exchange for learning a few of her vegetarian cooking techniques. And yes, there's um, great joy in that. I really love it. I also, I wanted to, you know, mention one thing, a slight correction. I didn't, you know, when I think about it, I didn't actually have a craving for a burger it was the convenience of the burger and the knowledge that a good burger was right down the street uh, at a time when I had no food in my refrigerator and it would be easy to you know uh, to pick up to go that that particular restaurant knows better than to give me plastic utensils or even a plastic bag to take it out in I've, I've lectured them so many times to please not do that that I'm bringing it home and I, I I've got you Tensils of oh, but uh, it was more the convenience 
and they're just sort of a burger would be great. It would be convenient to go get it. I didn't actually crave the burger. I sort of craved the convenience and the experience, uh, if you want to call it a craving for me, you know, that maybe even is too strong of a word, but uh, so it's why I think I'd say, you know, gosh, if a couple times a year, I'm uh, somewhere where I want to have a burger, maybe, you know, I just give myself permission to do that. But in general, I just don't feel that I can, knowing what I know, justify uh, continuing my consumption of uh, animal products as I have. So I'd already taken, as I said before, not to go on too much, you know, uh, steps to ensure that I was buying humanely raised animals, raised in the outdoors here in Dane County or surrounding counties of Madison, Wisconsin. And I've been doing that for a long time. And then I started working on reducing the quantity of, of beef by by highlighting the vegetables uh, and legumes. And that's what I found to be so much fun is learning the new sort of cooking techniques that are creating just this really flavorful food. And I just, I feel better. I have more energy. There's lots of benefits that, you know, I didn't uh, set out to experience, but are are abundantly clear as a part of the journey, you know? A big part of this podcast is to bring that message out so that people who are thinking about it recognize a lot of people are doing it, that when they do it, they're glad that they do it. You know, I'm sure there's some who try and go back, but that's, I've not come across many people like that. And it seems like people really enjoy it. And I want that joy, the expectation of joy to be a big part of some, that's a message that I don't hear out there. And now there were open threads before, and now it's going to be painful with all the open threads even more now, but I want to wrap up. Yes. And I usually wrap up with two questions. If, if there's anything you want to say directly to the listeners, if there's anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up, I'm going to indulge in one more question though. Going back to those constant thing, as you were talking about it, did I read that you read that you met Vince Lombardi? Uh, no, my father, though I, I could have, I was alive during the height of his success as a coach. He was an interesting guy and my father and he knew each other and he did something extremely unusual, probably especially back then, uh, in that he endorsed and recorded, uh, and I could send you the video, uh, a campaign commercial uh, endorsing my father. And he led by saying, I love this part, he led by saying, whether you are a Democrat or a Republican, this man, and then I, I haven't seen it in so long, I, I'd have to go back and look to, you know, but the robustness of his endorsement was was extraordinary. And then here he is as the coach of, uh, at that time, the, you know, the best football team in the country. And if you know anything about the Packers, there are other unique elements about our story, and including the fact that the team is actually owned by 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 us, okay, yeah. which is really cool. And um, anyway, it, it was very unusual. And he wanted to send a message to Democrats and Republicans that that my father's appeal as a public as a public servant uh, dedicated uh, to a set of uh, values around uh, uh, fairness, equity, the environment, and uh, well-functioning government, in essence, uh, uh, superseded uh, party affiliation. And I could send you the video, but I never, I never met him, I, you know, uh, but my dad and he was friends. Well, I appreciate the inside scoop, even if it wasn't a direct meeting. I would love to see that video if it's not too hard to dig up. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, it's in my father's archives, and I haven't seen it in a long time, so I'd like to. Okay. And then 
to the other questions, anything I didn't think to bring up or anything you want to say directly to the listeners? Well, no, I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation and I've already said this, but from my perspective, what I hope your listeners take away from hearing this conversation between you and me uh, is the extraordinary power of individuals to make a difference. And for me, when I am struck with the despair uh, over the state of environment, especially uh, climate change with greenhouse gas uh, concentrations at approaching 420 parts per million. I started this business. It was barely 300. I'm struck with despair uh, from time to time. And I, I bring myself up by imagining what it was like for my father all those years to fight to protect or advocate for uh, protect places, public lands, advocate for laws, often taking years of time and going through multiple defeats, eventually succeeding. But when I think of where this, the power of the idea of uh, environmental teaching and how that transformed the next chapter of American history in really significant ways, I would equate it in a, in a way with look at uh, the remarkable shift in public discourse around climate change and the urgency of addressing it and the power of the voice of youth simply by the act of a young girl, uh, Greta Thunberg, choosing to uh, sit alone in protest outside uh, the halls of the uh, Swedish parliament. And from this, a movement has been born that has energized youth uh, and changed the conversation in unimaginable ways. There's no way when Greta sat down on that stoop, she could have known the outcome. Uh, there was no way when my father asked teachers to set a day, uh, you know, uh, aside to teach on the environment that he could have known the outcome. This brings me hope, the, the sort of unimaginable goodness that can come from acting from a place of our values taking individual action and knowing that while it may seem small in the context of things, there's great power uh, in it, uh, often in unimaginable ways. Well, Tia, you've shared openly and candidly and genuinely and authentically and, and with broad experience and knowledge. And I appreciate that. I hope to come back to you and say what I've heard from readers about how things that you couldn't have expected made a difference in other people's lives. Yes. Tia, thank you very much. Yes, thank you, Josh. Um, very much enjoyed talking to you, and I'm grateful to you for your work. Many people, when considering acting on their environmental values, say how much they're already doing, implying, aren't I doing enough already? Shouldn't I be congratulated for this? How much more do I have to do? They miss what I hope came across here, that acting on your values improves your life. You gain from it. It's not a loss. It's not something hard to do. It's something you get to do. Saying it that way may sound abstract. To be more concrete, it's more delicious. It saves money. It connects you with your community more. I grant that the switch can be challenged, especially in a world designed for convenience in the old systems. But those old systems are decreasing the amount of life that hu in human society that the earth can sustain. After the switch, you won't want to go back. Actually, I put to you, if you do switch genuinely and authentically in a way that makes a difference, but decide afterward to go back to some old way of polluting unnecessarily, or even if you just simply don't love the new ways of living, let me know because I would love to learn from your experience. It's not, it's not been my experience or the people on this podcast. 
For that matter, if you do love the change, if you make a change and you love it, let me know that too. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and Living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.